0: There are a huge number of important issues that the Supreme Court is not addressing because they're just not taking enough cases. And if we put them in a position where they're both capable of doing more and perhaps being forced to do a little bit more, they could actually be making more important law for the country and actually doing more work for the country as well.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams, Bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued along with the Christmas children's book The Sled. Well, court packing is defined as the act or practice of packing a court, and especially the United States Supreme Court, by increasing the number of judges or justices in an attempt to change the ideological makeup of the court. And last month, Congressional Democrats introduced legislation to expand the Supreme Court from nine to 13 justices, and President Biden announced the formation of a commission to study the court structure, including the number of justices and their length of service. Of course, this has led to yet another controversy of long party lines as we've become much too used to. So we're going to see 13 justices or more under the Biden administration, or might we see the high court overhauled in a different way? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll discuss packing the Supreme Court, the politicization of the high court, potential reforms, along with the next steps. Today, our guest is Tanya Jacoby. She's the professor of law at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Professor Jacoby specializes in judicial behavior and strategy in public law. Her interests include judicial politics, Supreme Court oral arguments, criminal procedure, and constitutional law. Combining doctrinal, empirical, and formal analysis, Professor Jacoby examines how judges respond to institutional constraints and predictions of outcomes for court cases, especially on the Supreme Court. Professor Jacoby and Professor Matthew Sag recently wrote a piece for Bloomberg Law titled The Supreme Court Needs 15 Justices. Welcome to the show, Professor Jacoby.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, as we start this discussion today, let's talk overall about perhaps the what packing the court means and a little bit about the history of packing the court, maybe the range of justices that we've had along so far. I think a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with the history that, that goes behind this.
0: Well, I think the first natural question is, is there a difference between court packing and court reform? So we proposed uh, a a proposal for court reform and we wanted to differentiate that from some of the proposals that are, that are out there for court packing and you might say well what's the difference is it just uh, that you pack and we reform and I would say that we can differentiate the two and the first most important element is what is the motive is the motive simply to change the partisan balance of the court or is it to actually make the court institutionally more effective And then the other aspect is, well, what is the problem that you are trying to address? What are you trying to change? And are you just trying to change what the balance of partisan control on the court is, how many liberals and how many conservatives there are on the court? Or are you actually trying to make the court more effective in some way other than simply which outcomes you get? So are you trying to change, for example, how old the justices are, whether you think they're effective because justices uh, have an incentive to retire rather than to age out and potentially die on the court and be on the court when they're quite ill and ineffective. We've had cases of that. Or another aspect is Is the court itself effective? And what we were proposing is that the court is not doing enough. We can make the court do more work for the American people by instituting reform. And so it's not just about how many conservatives there are and how many liberals there are. We can actually reform the court to do more for the American people and um, make the judiciary uh, work better by having a more powerful Supreme Court. And so I would differentiate between packing and court reform that is actually trying to do more than just simply affect who has the balance of power.
1: Right. Well, let's talk about the Article One, Article Two, and Article Three judges that we have. We have some, I think, 870 judgeships and uh, 179 on the 13 courts of appeals, I think maybe somewhere in that range only nine on the Supreme Court. There have been 10 on the Supreme Court at times and there have been six on the Supreme Court at times. One of the things that intrigues me is your proposal for 15 judges and three panels of five. On the Ninth Circuit out here in California, we have 29 judges and we have panels of three. What's your thought about having panels on the Supreme Court and the number of cases that they can handle?
0: Well, there's no magic number that there have to be panels of five. Fifteen was the proposal that we put forward because five is a pretty manageable number to have on a panel and three panels make sense and you could more than triple the workload of the court because by having five judges on a panel rather than nine nine on a panel, more could get done. If you've listened to oral argument at the Supreme Court with nine justices all trying to get a word in edgewise, well, usually eight because Justice Thomas doesn't normally speak except under the strange rules of the pandemic. You can get more done if there are less justices on a panel. So we proposed having three panels of five, but you could have different numbers. The point is that the justices could be doing more rather than having just, you know, one panel of nine where every justice hears every case, but there aren't many cases. The justices are only hearing about 70, 75 cases a term. That's not a lot. Whereas if you look at the circuit cases and then certainly look at other courts like state courts, judges are hearing a lot more and they're doing a lot more work there's no reason that the supreme court justices couldn't be doing a lot more work and overseeing the federal judiciary much more effectively there are a huge number of important issues that the supreme court is not addressing because they're just not taking enough cases and if we put them in a position where they're both capable of doing more and and perhaps being forced to do a little bit more they could actually be making more important law for the country and actually doing more work for the country as well. And so this is an opportunity not simply to change the partisan balance, but to actually institute reform and make the court actually decide more issues. There are many important issues that are going unaddressed by the Supreme Court at the moment that really need to be addressed. And i can happy to share some examples with you. But the important point is, I mean, 70 cases among nine justices, There are um, there, each judge is only writing about um, seven or eight Majority opinions a year, and they have four. They each have four clerks to essentially ghostwrite those seven or eight opinions. I mean, it's 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 a very cushy job, shall we say?
1: It is quite a cushy job. And let's talk about I, one of the words you use. Uh, the, you know, whether you can force the judges to do things or not is an interesting question as you've pointed out you know we have problems in the criminal area we've got problems in patent law we've got conflicts between the circuits that remain unresolved there's a host of things that the supreme court is simply failing to do is there a way that there is there any kind of congressional authority or any type of supervision of the supreme court itself that can say to the judges you need to be working more. You need to handle these other cases
0: and solve these
1: problems. How do we get the court to address these issues?
0: I mean, there would obviously need to be a new judiciary act that spelt out certain conditions under which the court would need to take cases. So at the moment, the court just has total discretion over which cases it has. It gets about 8,000 petitions a year, and it takes 70 cases a year on average um, in most recent years. It used to take about 150 just a few decades ago. So it's decreased its own workload by more than half just in the last few decades. Now, we'd want to study the issue because you don't want to have unforeseen negative consequences of of rules that that you devise that have less than ideal incentives. But, you know, something that you could do, for example, is say, you know, if there is a circuit split then the Supreme Court shall take the case. Now, that is is an example where you could create a perverse incentive where you might have a circuit, you give a circuit, a court, a power to force a Supreme Court to take the issue by saying, oh, well... All the other circuits have gone this way. I could I could push the issue by you know, deciding the issue, the issue the other way, for instance. So you might want to you'd want a commission or something to look into whether that's a good idea. But that's an example that's well within congressional power to say here's an instance where you could force the court to to take an issue if there's a significant circuit split. And that's just one example that comes to my mind of an objective criteria that could be used to say to the court, look. If there's a circuit split, that means that there are different laws essentially being developed in different parts of the country. And that can lead to major variance that's really not satisfactory. And the Supreme Court should be addressing those issues. Like, that's part of its job is to resolve those sorts of differences between circuits. And that's just one example, but that's something that could be fed in rather than just the Supreme Court saying, well, we consider circuit splits, but quite often they don't take cases even when there are circuit splits.
1: Kind of reminds me of the milk truck cases and the Interstate Commerce Commission issues, where there was one law in one state that required round mud flaps and another law in another (laughs) state that required flat mud flaps, and the Supreme Court took issue with that. It seems like they're not paying attention to their own criticisms here and there.
0: Why would you not want more mud flap cases? I ask you. Why
1: not? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's you know you, we talked about court packing and court reform. Let's talk about the opposite side of this case. I mean, one of the criticisms of the nomination of the. Judiciary Act of 2021. And even your article suggesting 15 justices is that one president gets to stack these many, and then the next president comes along, and there's this many number on the justices on the court. What's to prevent the next Republican, as you pointed out in your article in Bloomberg, inevitably when the Republicans win again, what's to prevent them from changing it to six?
0: Uh, so that is part of the problem. If 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 it is just driven by pure packing motivation, that there's going to be you know tit for tat, that there'll be packing and then there'll be repacking. And part of the motivation, I think, people the reason people are talking about packing so much at the moment is there is a feeling that there has been packing by the Republicans, that the last three positions filled by the Republicans were all done under fairly controversial circumstances. Even the one that gets the least attention, Justice Kavanaugh, was reported to have, you know, Justice Kennedy was reported to have been heavily persuaded to retire by being told that he would have one of his clerks appointed, Justice Kavanaugh, to fill his spot, which is fairly untoward. And so all three positions, we know that Justice Gorsuch got the position that was going to be, was nominated to be filled by uh, Merrick Garland, by Justice Obama was nominated, by President Obama nominated him. And that was just refused to be even considered by the Republican Senate, even though it was 11 months before the federal election. But then just a few days before the election, Justice Barrett was, 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 Put on the bench. So there's a feeling that all three of those justices were essentially pushed through under fairly dubious circumstances. So there's a view that the court has already been packed. And so this is the tit for tat already by the Democrats to come in and repack or unpack the court. And so, sure, when the Republicans get in power, then what's to stop them doing that? And that is not great for the legitimacy of the court if it's seen as this sort of political football that goes back and forth. And that is definitely harmful. And I think also the fact that the court is so out of line at the moment with popular views, Um, the the six conservatives on the court, and particularly five of those six, excluding the chief justice, are so extremely conservative that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's an expectation that they might overrule Roe v. Wade, for example. They're taking a new Second Amendment case that could be quite extreme and out of line with popular opinion that there's a, a feeling that you know that packing is sort of a political response to an extremely political court. And so the court looks political already. And so that leads to a political response. And so, and I think the Chief Justice is very concerned about this, and rightly so. I think it's not great for the court. Um, The court has always had a very high level of respect. There have been times when it's had a bad, a worse reputation, for example, after Bush v. Gore. But generally, the court is held in high repute, and that's where its power comes from. And so I think... the chief is right to be concerned with the the respect and the legitimacy of the court and what's going to happen if there is this sort of back and forth political football over over court packing. But I think the Republican view is that, you know, court packing is outrageous when the Democrats do it. But I think the Democrat view is there's already been court packing. And so there is sort of justification. And so it's, uh, you know, each side thinks that they're justified, essentially.
1: Right. So is essentially then the argument that not only does the Supreme Court need to be reformed, but also Congress, because we wouldn't be in this problem, presumably, if Mitch McConnell and, and the Republicans hadn't rushed through, as you pointed out, preventing Garland and, and putting in Gorsuch and putting in Kavanaugh and putting in Barrett. If that had not happened, then there would have been more of a balance. Does Congress also need to be reformed here?
0: Well, I think Congress definitely has changed since 1994 Republican Revolution. There's been massive political polarisation, and this can be measured empirically to show that the centre has completely disappeared and there's extremists on both sides. And the, the middle is measurably almost extinct. And both parties, uh, the left is much more left and the right is much more right. And so the room for political compromise has all but disappeared. Um, and so I think political uh, judicial nominations are one symptom of that. And so the complete failure to come up with an ability to agree on a compromise candidate when you have divided government is a product of congressional political polarization. And I don't see that changing. The politicians fear being primaried more than they fear losing the general election. And we know that primary voters are more extreme. And so there's little expectation that that's going to improve.
1: Right. And, and I guess as far as we look at the Supreme Court, generally, the thing I learned in law school is it's we rely on precedent. It's a centrist organization. It doesn't swing from one side to the other. And the Partisanship in Congress is played now over into the partisanship that appears on the Supreme Court. An interesting question that you raised earlier about the attack on Roe versus Wade kind of harkens back a bit to the controversy around FDR's attempt to pack the court and then what they called the famous, and perhaps you can explain it for our listeners, the switch in time that saved nine.
0: Yeah, that was a very interesting historical episode, and I think that nicely illustrates the respect that the Supreme Court has always had. So uh, back in the 1930s, when the Supreme Court was really interfering with uh, the New Deal and was striking down piece after piece of legislation, and FDR was getting extremely frustrated. He won won re-election in a landslide, and he felt that he had a mandate not only to pass legislation as part of the New Deal, but to also overcome this uh, resistance from the Supreme Court. So he put forward this proposal that every Supreme Court justice who was over, I think it was 70 years of age, would have another justice appointed to sit alongside them. And it just happened that all of the justices who were striking down his legislation were the older justices, and this would bring partisan balance back towards the outcomes that the Democrats uh, wanted and would get uh, all, all of his legislation upheld. And there was huge resistance to this in the public, even though there was there was incredible support for FDR and for the New Deal platform. And, and he just won this massive, massive majority, not just for himself, but in Congress. And there was this view that this was just so blatantly court packing that even though it was dressed up as to do with the age of the justices, everybody knew what was really going on. And I think, to be honest, the the proposal put forward by the Democrats most recently to have a 13-justice court that's based and the, and the the justification given was um, we have 13 circuit courts and so you need to have 13 justices and there used to be this idea that the justices would ride circuit and that there'd be one justice for each circuit and that's sort of it it doesn't really have much of a much of a sheen of plausibility to it because the justices don't really ride circuit anymore. It has a similar sort of level of plausibility to it. And the public was very opposed to this and it didn't end up going through. And instead what happened was one of the justices, Justice Roberts, actually changed his vote and started voting to support the New Deal legislation. Now, most people call this the switch in time that saved nine. It saved the justices from having to face whether they really were going to have this court packing plan. There is a view out there. My uh, my PhD advisor, Barry Weingast, always said, no, the Democrats had come into power. They didn't. They had been out of power for a long time. They didn't know how to write legislation. And they finally learnt how to write legislation properly and passed the Supreme Court a review. But uh, I think that's the minority view. Most people thought, yeah, the, the Supreme Court really wanted to avoid being uh, subject to this uh, sort of institutional challenge. And they did just, one justice was enough to switch votes and actually allow, uh, you know, the modern administrative state to blossom. And that's what we have today. So I think it illustrates the, the respect that the Supreme Court has always had and the and the reluctance of people to allow that level of just obvious court packing to go ahead, even when there was huge support for the political branches and, the, and what they were trying to achieve, you know, outlawing child labour, for example. But even though they didn't like what the Supreme Court was doing, and it, the Supreme Court was very out of whack with the public then, but I think, I think there were less polarised times perhaps, but there was that the court had much more political assets um, in its reputation then. So whether that would be the same level of outrage now, I think the public is much more polarised now.
1: Right, and you, you correctly point that out. We, we you know, as we mentioned even in the beginning, that it's just been partisan politics with no center. And you also mentioned that that uh, the Supreme Court currently seemed out of touch with the popular opinion. There's also a, a kind of a contrary view to that that originalists the constructionalists the the ones who look at the uh, what the framers intent was what's your perspective on whether the Supreme Court should move with the times and adapt or whether it should stay true to what the government was expected to be when it was formed
0: well I mean if you look at what the framers thought there was no expectation by the framers that two hundred years plus later that people would be looking at what the framers thought as to how to interpret the Constitution. So there's always been a bit of a methodological problem there, I think, with originalism. And that's why I think we see these different views of original meaning versus original intent and so on. There's sort of this shifting notion within originalism as to which type of originalism takes the day on any case. You know, if you look at uh, cases like Heller, the guns rights case, where there's you know prefatory language in the Second Amendment and that sort of gets, that gets ignored when it comes to gun rights, The the actual language in the text that says, you know, essentially the purpose of the Second Amendment is this, it's like, oh, well, you know, that's just emphatic. So there's, you know, there's obviously selectivity in that. So the idea that, you know, that originalism is constraining in the way that it's said to, you know, give legitimacy and therefore be the only way forward is, um, is patently false. I think there's a notion that part of the mechanism by which I think the Supreme Court now is quite... Out of line with with the most the majority of the country is that you know the the federalist society is extremely strong in pushing candidates of a particular ilk and originalist originalism is one main mechanism of that and it leads to outcomes necessarily originalism is essentially backwards looking and therefore inherently conservative in that backwards looking sense and so it's necessarily going to be behind the majority. Of views of most Americans. But the Federalist Society is an incredibly powerful interest group at pushing judicial nominees and and vetting, you know, having sort of almost veto power when it comes to conservative appointments. And so that is going to lead necessarily to this disconnect between what the average person thinks, even you know, even if the average person doesn't have highly sophisticated legal views, they can have overall views about you know whether people should have access to certain sorts of guns, for example, and that's going to be very out of line with what a conservative appointee is to the Supreme Court is going to have because it's, they're going to have to ha- have gone through this process that is necessarily going to lead to a very narrow pool of candidates.
1: Well, let's jump back to something you mentioned about abortion. And perhaps the switch in time to say, that saved nine. The Supreme Court has just recently announced that it's going to pick up a, a major abortion challenge, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, and their conservatives are saying that their hope that there will be overturning Roe versus Wade. How do you think that that the Dobbs is going to play out on the Supreme Court? Do you have any predictions in terms of how the judges are going to vote on this one?
0: So, if you'd asked me a year or two ago, prior to the most recent appointment, when the Chief Justice essentially had the deciding vote, my answer would have been that, no, I don't think that they would have overturned Roe, that what they have been, the the Roberts Court approach to these issues is not to overturn cases like that that are going to get a lot of attention. The Roberts approach is, is to gut precedence from within. So you don't need to overturn Roe, you can just gut it of all meaning. And Casey was a big step on the way towards doing that. Casey basically took Roe, which was said, you know, you have a fundamental right to choose and said, well, we're going to treat your right to choose as subordinate to all other rights. We're going to apply a different standard and come up with this substantial burden test, which is different to all other fundamental rights. And we're going to say, well, what's the substantial burden? We're going to add all these different conditions on your fundamental right, and we're going to add all these protections for the state to interfere with a woman's right to choose, and we're going to slowly decrease and decrease and allow all these incursions on a woman's right to choose. And there has been a continuation of that, Um, for years now, and that that the Roberts Court would have just continued to do that. And the Roberts Court wouldn't need to take the hit, the reputational hit of actually overturning Roe, and could just essentially take away much of the meaning of a woman's right to choose. So that's what I would have said when the Chief Justice had the power, because he is, as I said, very concerned with the reputational hit that the court would take of, of a big, impact case like overturning Roe v Wade. But now that there are six conservative justices on the court and and he is the least conservative, and I think the other five justices are much less concerned with the legitimacy of the court and much more ardent, I think, in their desire to make big decisions like overturning Roe, I think it's much more likely. I can't say with certainty it's going to happen. I think the justices are still aware of the threat of, you know, court packing or reform, both of those possibilities. So it's possible that they could moderate their behaviour out of fear of that um, sort of, you know, attack. But I think it's become a lot more likely. I think, you know, Justice Thomas is completely... Unrestrained in that regard, Justice Alito absolutely would vote to overturn Roe. Justice Barrett, absolutely, and I think Justice Gorsuch extremely likely. I think you know Justice Kavanaugh is probably the most pragmatist justice on the of that conservative block, but I think I think he's probably pretty likely to vote to overturn as well. So I think it's become a lot more likely than when you just had five conservatives. So I think I think it's, it's distinctly possible that Roe could actually be overturned or it could be a big major blow. So it could be partially overturned. They could find some mechanism to take out one of its legs and then in a future case, take out another leg. Um, that's another thing that the Roberts Court does, um, we wrote another op-ed recently about, you know, election reform and the mechanisms by which they'll take out, you know, in, in, in election law, there's, you know, the technique of sort of taking out one leg of, a, of the Voting Rights Act, and then in future, they're going to take out another leg of the Voting Rights Act, and we're predicting how that was going to happen. Um, so that's a common mechanism as well. So I think there's actually a good chance that what we'll see is Roe overturned in stages.
1: Death by a thousand cuts, kind of like what happened with Miranda.
0: Yeah, yeah. But possibly even a little bit more dramatically than Miranda. Miranda was a a much slower demise. We could see it a little bit more dramatic. Like, I think the conservative base is looking for a bit more spectacular win than some of the Miranda decisions. Miranda decisions sort of took decades,
1: Let's follow through with that logic. Let's assume that the Supreme Court just slam dunks Roe versus Wade and, you know, the first line is overturned. At that point, what role can Congress play?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, other than other than court reform, I think Congress could write legislation trying to provide greater protection for women's rights, you mean providing a legislative solution. But, you know, this this court has written a lot to talk about, you know, the rights of states to protect, you know, the fetus. And I think they've sort of been laying the groundwork to defy that kind of congressional action as well. So I think that could be, I certainly would, would think that that would be worth trying, but I think there might be some roadblocks there as well. But I definitely think that's something that would be worth attempting. And that might be able to set out, you know, a minimum yeah, it's it's a little bleak for those who care about women's equality.
1: I mean, there are huge constitutional and political issues at play here. This is a is this one of the more significant turning points for the Supreme Court in its lifetime?
0: Yeah, uh, I think it is. I mean, I think this is this is one of the issues that gets the most attention. I actually think that as much as I think the imp- the issue of of women's access to abortion rights is is you know, fundamentally important, I think that that the election reform decisions that the court's been making are actually some of the more harmful decisions it's been making, because if you don't get elections right, then the whole system... Fails. Like, you know, uh, you know we could be not in a true democratic system if, you know, if the the Supreme Court said you can gerrymander as much as you want and the Supreme Court will never step in. That's what they said last year in Rucho. And, you know, at the same time, they're allowing states to write laws that are massively interfering with voters' rights through allowing voter suppression. And so if we don't have protection for the most fundamental right of, of voting, then we're completely dependent on the Supreme Court for our rules, because the democratic process doesn't work. And I actually think that's more fundamental than the abortion question, because at least half the states will protect abortion rights anyway. Whereas, you know, if we don't have election rules, then, you know, then we can, the system can't even correct itself. And so, you know, I I subscribe to the John Hart Ely view that the most fundamental thing the Supreme Court has to do is get the, the rules of the playing field right. And That's more important than anything else. And so I actually think that's the most important issue. And the Supreme Court's been really tilting that playing field for some time. And I think Roe v. Wade, as important as it is, is in some ways sort of distracting us from, from some of the worst decisions, like Shelby County, where it started striking down aspects of the Voting Rights Act. That's actually more harmful and it doesn't get as much attention because, you know, we haven't been hearing about it for the last, you know, five decades
1: well, Professor Jacoby, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. So I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to share your final thoughts and provide your contact information. One of the questions that I'd like you to kind of follow up with is, as you wrap up is uh, addressing this constitutional crisis, this constitutional crossroads that we're at. Where do we go? What do we do?
0: So, I mean, I think we have to we have to take seriously the role of the judiciary in all of these questions and not just think about, you know, who has short-term control? Like, what is the role of the court? When I wrote my article sort of saying, you know, we need court reform, people were saying, oh, you know, you just want court packing. And I point people to a couple of years ago, I wrote an article saying, you know, in my area, criminal procedure, uh, I wrote a very, very long 30 5,000-word article saying called Supreme Irrelevance that just shows how the Supreme Court's just not doing enough to address all of the areas in criminal procedure, um, you know, and that's why we have a mass incarceration problem, etc., you know, because the Supreme Court's just not doing its job. And, you know, that trickles down to so many different issues. And so part of writing our ship of, you know, democracy is getting the supreme court right and getting the judiciary right and then once the judiciary is right then we can have, you know, the rules of democracy being corrected as well. And I think part of it's not everything about the constitutional crisis that we're facing, you know, it doesn't It doesn't necessarily fix, you know, election interference from Russia, but I think an important part of it is making sure that the judiciary is doing its job and the judiciary doing its job can then make sure that, you know, Congress is doing its job. And so I do really believe that court reform is a fundamental aspect of, you know, fixing the constitutional crisis that we're in and restoring America, you know, Americans' faith in the working of government and and part of the working government is the proper working of the supreme court and the judiciary generally so it's not just you know it's not just who has partisan control of the court it's just it's getting the judiciary to work properly so so i do hope this this issue is taken seriously and and looked at beyond just the short term sort of partisan control so i hope that that i hope that it does get the attention that it deserves
1: wonderful thank you Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to thank Professor Tanya Jacoby. She was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.
1: And for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.